This is it, babies. We end our season with Corinne. Absolutely incredible human I met when both our bands played at Everybody Hits in Philadelphia. R.I.P. She's a person who is in command of her space, time, and doesn't waste her energy on people who aren't deserving. I love that shit. This episode talks about knowing your strengths and what your skills are and letting no one tell you otherwise. Corinne is constantly moving and doing things that she loves and she's a fucking beast at it and knows it. I love that shit. I hope this episode inspires you to feel the same way, to take up the space you know you deserve, to feel yourself and not think it to be egotistical. Be feeling yourself and know others will see it and know to come correct when approaching you. We all fucking deserve. Also, I let Carolyn talk most of this convo because these two women have so much in common and I love watching them connect. It was really wonderful energy. All right, hit it, Carolyn. And I am Carolyn. And this is Creatives on Deck, an interview-style podcast where we talk to creatives who often find themselves working in two worlds, in their artistic endeavors that make them thrive, and the service jobs that not only fund their livelihoods, but teach them about people. Today, our guest is Corinne Osterman, an artist, musician, and performer based in Baltimore, Maryland. She produces paintings, collages, drawings, video work, and the occasional three-dimensional object. Corinne graduated summa cum laude from Maryland Institute College of Art in 2013 with a degree in painting and gender studies and attended Interlochen Center for the Arts in Interlochen, Michigan as a high school student. She also creates and performs music with her band Natural Velvet as the front woman, vocalist, and bassist. Their latest full length is called Mirror to Make You. Corinne, thank you for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me, you guys. For real, this is a big deal. I just want to say when I went to your website to look at the bio, I also saw the band photos and album art. And I got to say, I love all of it. The colors and everything is so good. You know, it's really funny because I also went to your website and saw that you (laughs) have an equally insane resume. Yes, you're also a doer. You're a doer of all the things as well. Yeah. Every once in a while, I'm like, should I try and learn this? I mean, why not? What's stopping me? (laughs) Is it useful? I mean, worse. You know, worst case scenario, you have more skills than you could possibly deal with and always get paid. So. <laughs> I'll cross the true. fingers on get paid, but you know, it's fine. I feel better about myself knowing I can, you know, think I can do more at least. That's what counts. <laughs> Generally, where we like to start with people is talking about their history of service work. And also in case your first job was not a service job, what was your first job? So I technically never worked in like food service. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of on for, for a reason, partially because I know the kind of person I am and like I probably wouldn't have survived well. So I definitely went the retail route at first, which was a nightmare, as you would imagine. Oh yeah. The retail is always fun, but I was also doing retail at a flower shop. So I was also doing weddings and events. So once I got done doing three years of retail, I switched and I've been freelancing ever since. Um, 
So I don't really do the whole like flower shop speak to old people anymore. I only work with the brides. <laughs> so I, I'm admittedly very spoiled when it comes to my employment because it's all freelance. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have done the service work and I've, uh, I'm looking forward to wedding season and dying this year. <laughs> Because the pandemic pushed everything back, I'm like, oh my God, I think I've got like 30 weddings on the books already. It's only March. Oh. I was going to say, yeah, I used to work for a video production place and half of Oh, what so we you did. totally know. <laughs> yeah, the entire process of working with bride and groom for their wedding video is so much pre-work. Day of work is outrageous. And the editing that comes afterwards is also insane. I know I already have a couple to edit freelance wise from the same production place. But, you know, part of what we film for B-roll during the day is the floral arrangements being set up and everything always looks so beautiful. But some of the people on that team look fairly stressed uh, and others just look so soothed and like in their element. And I'm just like, I wish I could be with flowers like that. Floral design is totally soothing, like 100%. It's just having to deal with like the retail side of things. Again, exactly. when you're only doing weddings, at least then I'm talking with maybe the bride and her family and I can have a better idea of what they're asking for mm-hmm. versus some like rando on the street who's like, I want hydrangeas. You give them hydrangeas. They're like, no, I wanted hydrangeas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Yes. What we worked on with this podcast too is Uh, Also broadening people's understanding of what service work counts as. And we wanted it to kind of be this rude idea of people performing an act or service for someone else at the root level. So in a lot of ways, it includes a lot of the creative work a lot of guests do. Absolutely. So sort of sticking with other work you do and have done, um, what would you consider in that term service work? Technically everything. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Prior to the pandemic, I was working as an art handler at the Katzen Center in D.C. So that was a service work of moving hundred, you know, million dollar paintings from like one room to another. Or sometimes I do freelance art handling in which I'm doing that for wealthy clients here in town, private clients. Other service work is just I've done so many weddings at this point. Like sometimes we ask people if there are specific work experiences they had that were either ultra positive or ultra negative, because sometimes that's more of what people remember and what those experiences were and what you learned from them. Um, In terms of ultra negative, I can remember those right off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, God, if that's a Scorpio moment. Um, (laughs) Definitely working at the flower shop sucked. The boss there, I remember we were working at Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving is maybe the second biggest day besides like. Easter and Mother's Day and like Valentine's Day in the industry. And I remember she was freaking out so hard that she took the phone off the cradle and like threw it at the wall. It snapped and broke into multiple pieces. And she like locked herself in the bathroom to go sob. And I remember standing there and being like, "Okay, who's here for their arrangement? (sighs) So I work as a fabricator as well, in addition to everything else that I do. Um, Part of the reason that that happened is because I started working as a fabricator under a different artist um, here in town. And we were working on like set design and event work. And this dude, I don't know how else to say this nicely. This man is in his mid 40s. And I was watching this dude ripping bongs and then shove wood through like very serious table saw. It was hard to watch because I was like, why on God's green earth am I his assistant? And why am I not just running my own studio? Mm -hmm. Um, So that was my last boss. I did have a really good boss when I used to clean houses who was really chill. She was awesome. Her name is Jane and she's in a touring band called Curse, if you remember that band. 
And she tours a good chunk of the time, but she would, oh my God, you just tell her that you needed to go on tour. And she's like, okay, no problem. I was like, I loved that job for that reason. Yeah. Yeah. She at least was chill. It was nice to have a good boss after a really shitty one. I went from like boss throwing things at the window and playing unemployment chicken with the flower shop lady to working as a house cleaner. And it, you know, it was kind of a different kind of like switch, obviously, because we're talking about perceived notions of skill Mm -hmm. and especially in pink collar work. But it was much more refreshing to work under Jane than it was to work under A. So Mm. a good boss really makes it, you know, is really worth its weight in gold. What made you finally get to the point where you wanted to be more self-employed, where you were just like, I really don't want to work for other people anymore? And how did you get to be able to balance enough self-employment work to keep that? Gosh, in terms of timing, this would have been end of 2018. And I was working as a fabricator in that studio, working on a set design for this huge like Mardi Gras party. It was the kind of thing where like we would do set design for like giant events that would take six months to build. Mm. I was going to say, what does a fabricator do? So a fabricator, it's just generally, it's like basically sculpture. In my case, I was wiring um, LED signs, but I was also carving giant Mardi Gras masks. And we also had floats that we had to produce because it was a Mardi Gras related thing. And the floats had to physically move so that we could put people on it and then push them around. It was some like Illuminati crap out of D.C. (laughs) To be real, to be very real with you, but it paid my bills very nicely. Um, But it was one of those things where I was like, if this guy can run a studio and get this huge account because this was something that he only really worked as a fabricator I want to say um, second part of the year because the rest of the year he would take off after doing this big ass thing I'm like if this guy can run a studio and he hasn't cut his fingers off yet with a table saw and is smoking weed like a motherfucker and making me listen to like garbage sexist music I'm I'm like I quit I'm going to my own studio we're going to yeah. listen to Lady Gaga hell aloud <laughs> I'm not going to have any male co-workers because then I don't have to ever discuss anything mm-hmm. and be done with it. So, yeah, that was the end of working yeah, with him and also allowing shitty bosses to exist. Because mm-hmm. at this point, I would rather just starve to death. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like what you're describing, though, is that these jobs are not only mentally intense, but physically intense. You know, house cleaning is a lot of physical labor. Yes. Oh, my God. And from what you're describing, fabricating sounds like it's a lot of heavy machinery use and large, heavy loads to move around very specifically. It's super butch. Um, It's super butch work, (laughs) which is very funny for me as somebody who's like very identified as a femme. But (laughs) it was such a masculine job because it's like dudes who know how to build shit. And then Mm -hmm. if you're a woman who goes in there, they're like, you know, Mm -hmm. it's one of the last industries that will eventually get broken into by women because it's still very much held by men. And it's also partially because, you know, we we don't teach women that we can be strong and like build shit Mm -hmm. and do stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it is very physical labor, very, very hard labor. But I would, again, rather throw my back out paying my own ass than having to like deal with a shitty boss who's like, oh, you threw your back out. Fuck you. Then you got to come to work tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, no, I'd rather be calling the shots. Let's hear about your background of growing up. You moved around a little bit. It was mostly in the Midwest. Yeah. And I feel like in the pre-interview, you mentioned kind of living in these spaces where some of it was suburban, some of it seemed a little rural, and then it became more like cities. And I wanted to I wanted to get some some more detail on that. Yeah. So I started out in a suburb outside of Chicago called Wheaton, 
It's right next to Naperville. If you want to look up some of the wealthiest places to live in the Midwest, <laughs> Naperville is on the top of the list. Um, we were in the cheaper suburb next door. And it's about like a half hour outside of Chicago City. So that was cool in terms of like getting in and out of the city. But I wasn't really allowed to like ride the train much or like run around or do anything, partially because my parents are both evangelical Christians. And I'm saying evangelical here mostly just as um, an indicator that their Christianity is based in like telling the good truth or whatever. I know that they both don't necessarily like identify as evangelicals, but they are. That's what they are. Mm-hmm. Mm. I, I under- understand why they don't, but <laughs> they go to that church. It's a big church. Um, <laughs> yeah. So they moved out and we moved out into like a more rural suburb when I was like 10 or something. Um, and it went from like being 30 minutes outside of the city with like people who actually could like speak other languages and there was some diversity to like the rural farm people. Mm-hmm. And like 95% white. And it was a bit too much. The attitude problems in that city were awful. Glad I got out of there. <laughs> One of our guests, Heidi, that we had just interviewed a few days ago, she talked about when she was doing service work, she had gone from California to West Virginia to the East Coast. And that idea of Southern hospitality played into what she saw as a service worker. But when you were living in these places, did you see a difference in how people were treated at service jobs or was it like not really front of mind? I mean, there, are, yeah, there are cultural differences in terms of the way that tr- workers are treated in the Midwest than they are on the East Coast, especially and artists as well, I would say. It's much more of a modest kind of a place to live and people mm. tend to be kind of like middle of the road. But that also means that they're not willing to, like, shake anything up if something's actually messed up. Mm. So you can you can understand my where I'm getting at in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's a beautiful place to live. I love it. Um, it is economically depressed by comparison to the East Coast. So that was partially the reason I moved out here and also partially because people understand art and like the way it's built on this side of the country and understand that you do have to fund the arts as opposed to being like, oh, you're an artist. That's great. Can you please continue bringing me up? at the Safeway or whatever, mm, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. They're like, that's cute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's cute. You make art, that's cute. Oh my a little God. art thing, that's adorable. It's just precious. Yeah, th- that's usually how it was when I was working uh, the retail aspect. We would occasionally get that at the flower shop. And granted, again, I was very privileged in that I only had to do three years as like forward-facing um, service work in that regard and then kind of slunk off back to the shadows so nobody can yell at me. I wanted to explore a little bit more being raised evangelical and when you, in your pre-interview questions, had mentioned a certain mindset that your parents had, which was that art was made to glorify God. Yes. And how that mentality played into how you interpreted your creative work and how that played into how you processed like being good at something. I mean, it ultimately means that I was born with a day job, at least when it comes to like what my parents wanted from me. My father's a musician and my mother is an artist. And as the oldest child, I had to do something creative because they would have otherwise kicked my ass. <laughs> Real, you know how it is as an oldest child. Perhaps you don't. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Are you an oldest? Yes. <laughs> so, you know, there's a fine line between like uh, walking that like I really, really want to like please my parents, but also like y'all suck kind of thing. <laughs> So, but yeah, there's that fine line as a oldest daughter and they made me walk it. (laughs) 
I went to church for 18 years. I went on a mission trip, mm. technically. Oh, wow. Yeah. Though, so to where? be clear, we went to Nicaragua. And to be clear, I saw it was bullshit the second I got on the plane and only worked in the kitchen with the moms. I was not dealing with any of the kids. Because I was like, the last thing you want to do is like make friends with these kids and then be like, all right, bye. Yeah. Like, yeah. I was like, I'll at least go do something useful and like help these people prepare food. Like, who gives a shit? That's actually yeah, useful. For sure. I'm not really suggesting people go on mission trips. That was the only one I went on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was, again, bullshit. Mm-hmm. That's fair. <laughs> and I also don't speak Spanish. So they just put gringo to work and that was good. Um <laughs> <laughs> and that's good. That was what I was there to do for you a week. But the evangelical community that I was raised in, they didn't get really intense until after 9-11. Mm-hmm. And then it was very like Jesus camp. I did I did four years of Jesus camp. I will wow. not go into the details of that, mm-hmm. but it was a nightmare. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just generally getting taught that you're like a garbage slut um, from the Midwest is like not the way to go about learning about religion, but it also, on the other hand, required that I produce work at a high quality Mm. and that I be born to do such a thing. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, like, yay, but also on the other hand, you know. Yeah. Again, reading the great detail you put into these (laughs) pre-interview questions. No, it was so good because it it was. Please don't do not apologize for any of that. I felt like I gave you so much. I'm like, sorry, here's a novel. No, it's so good because one of the things I noticed was just you mentioned in grade school and middle school, you couldn't name a teacher that was positive towards you with your creative endeavors because you felt like some of them felt slighted that you were working so hard on your craft and musically like were working at home really hard to become good at what you were doing and that you often were fighting with teachers to become better at this. So that mentality from the religious background in some ways it honed you into wanting to become good at a craft at a skill but like at what cost and yeah then that relationship to teachers where it's like you know a lot of people will say this teacher inspired me they helped me get through something so how was it hearing no and a lot of negative reaction to being creative I would always get like sideways answers is the only way I could ever explain it like especially especially after I went to Interlochen, which if you speak Midwestern, Interlochen is a BFD arts and music camp as well as a boarding school that's located in Interlochen, Michigan. And it's usually the first stop for most uh, professional musicians on their way to going to conservatory for like uh, classical music. But it's also really renowned for its visual arts program. Mm-hmm. So I was there for the visual arts program. And by the time I got back, I mean, y- you also have to understand if I've been raised to be an artist and if I've gone to one of the best art programs in the country at the age of 16, I'm not going to handle being told how to make my work by a public school teacher. It's just not going to fly. So admittedly, admittedly, (laughs) I was a brat. (laughs) Admittedly, admittedly, it's super bratty looking back on it now because I remember I would get sideways answers. I would ask like my ceramics teacher or something and I'm like, why? Why would you decide to become a ceramicist? And she's like, oh, well, the ceramicist had all the good parties. And I was like, (laughs) I don't want to fucking hear it anymore. The other problem with evangelical Christianity in that it that when there's that kind of concept of like doing your art for the Lord, the problem is, is that you get like a certain amount of mediocrity mm. because people are like, oh, well, I opened my mouth and I sang and therefore that's my talent. No, you do have to actually do your time. That was a huge part of also why I left. It was just a insane embrace of mediocrity and bad art, honestly. 
from a lot of different people, visual as well as music. So that was partially the, the reason why I left. Um, but that's also, I wasn't spending a ton of time in Chicago City, which is a totally different beast. You mentioned that both your parents were also teachers, like your dad taught band oh, yeah. <laughs> and your mom was an art teacher. So I feel like that had to have played into comparing answers you were getting from the teachers you had to the teachers you were raised with and how you explain and create your own art. You know, it's it's interesting because my parents were also state school educated musicians and artists. And like, I don't mean that in like a like a shitty way, but it is a certain kind of education versus like going to a specific art program which is something that I did at Maryland Institute College of Art. So I have a slightly different way of talking about things, but they did have a really good language of how to explain stuff. It wasn't just like because I said so because I'm the mom or whatever. Mm -hmm. It was because here's the logic in the thing. And I honestly felt that they would do a better job of explaining it than teachers because they would, again, do the because I said so. Mm -hmm. I I imagine that flew because most people would do that to their kids. But oh, yeah, I was just a brat (laughs) in school being like, why? (laughs) Why? They were very glad when I graduated. (laughs) Oh, my God. In addition to all of this painting artwork you do, you do also play instruments. Yes. So very much at like the seventh grade, I kind of had my father come to me. And again, with the firstborn thing, they're very like, you must have everything like kind of figured out. Um, So by seventh grade, he's like, you need to figure out if you want to focus on music or on art. And I had sat there thought thinking about it. And I had played trombone since I was like in like fifth grade or something. Decent ish. Could sight read pretty well. Had a great tone. But it was also one of those things where I was like, if I get stuck in a practice room staring at like an empty wall in a conservatory, Mm. I would rather go to art school and potentially waste that money. Mm hmm. And at least get to look at beautiful things for four years until I figure out what happens. And then, I don't know. So that was more that was mostly the choice. But once I got to art school, I did two years at art school and then went to a couple shows in Baltimore. And at the time, the Baltimore music scene was fucking popping. Mm-hmm. And I went and saw a show and I was like, oh, I can do that. <laughs> so I got a bass guitar, learned how to play it. And two months later, I was in a band and now I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> People ask me what you're doing, and I'm like, I didn't make it out of my college town. <laughs> I didn't make it out of the band that I started in college. I'm still fucking here, man. It's 2021. I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> I love that, though. It depends. It depends on what your signs of success are. If it's long-term friendships and your ability to be able to trust in people, to believe in yourself. Those are the goals. Did you achieve those? That's all that matters. Yeah. That's mostly what it is. I mean, at this point, I'm still doing that magical thing, which I know everybody is doing currently with um, the pandemic where we go, okay, so our income has been decimated because we've been creatives. Now what? And figuring out how to pivot and also how to not die. That's been like the big, the big one this year. Holy shit. Mm -hmm. But in terms of like the band, yeah, the band's been around since 2012. It was started during senior thesis. I really do not recommend doing that. Especially in oh, art school. No. Yes, oh, I, no. Dude, exactly. <laughs> I have no idea how we're still here. <clears throat> I, I, Sorry. I have I'm thinking no... about my senior year of art school yeah, exactly. and I'm like, why? <laughs> we, were pl- we were playing twice a week during senior thesis. I have no fucking clue how we did it. And I also have no clue how my bandmates didn't murder me. <laughs> With the band, a day's great questions. 
One of them was, what did you use for inspiration? Your answer was really interesting because it was not inspiration, but curated artist shame. Yes, that is 100% the way that I make my work. I'm going to get off the phone with y'all and I'm going to go to the studio because I've curated my shame about the fact that I haven't gotten any painting done today. That's how it works. You know, it's a, it's a cyclical, it's a cyclical thing um, and curated artist shame, at least the way that I do it without having to do any inspiration, because, again, you can never really wait for the inspiration. Um, and especially when your income is really hugely based on you producing the work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would always play this game where I'd be in the studio and I'd be sitting there thinking in my head, being like, oh, I should go play more music, blah, blah, blah. I should go do this, that, answer my emails, because there's always going to be galaxy brain, whatever, especially when you're trying to like hone in on a craft. So I would take my time in the studio and kind of just sit there and be like, I should, I should be playing with my band more. And then, you know, when I'm at band practice, I'm like, I should be painting, blah, blah, blah. So it's just like a never ending cycle of being like ashamed. Yes. But that's okay. Mm-hmm. I'd rather be doing that than get stuck in a creative rut of some sort. So using, using that guilt in a way where it like creates progress, where you feel less guilt about the guilt. Yes, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, layers of guilt. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's fair. I feel like all of us have definitely been like doing one thing and being like, oh, I should definitely work on this more. Like, when's the last time I picked this up or like read this? Oh, yeah. Fuck yeah. Yeah, that's real. Also, the way you had just written, like, I, I don't there is no time for inspiration. We don't have none of us have time for it. Things are flying so quickly. I mean, my God, like, I think I wrote these pre-questions. I think it was like almost a year ago. It was April. And then I went to check in with you and I was like, hi, uh, it is Black Lives Matter right now. (laughs) The world is on fire. (laughs) I was like, seriously, you can get to me whenever because this is not Lord. (laughs) Too much is going on. Yeah, Yeah, the world is moving too quick. We don't have time for inspiration. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, as much as I would love to be like, oh. And I mean, I do have my moments of like, I invented something. I feel like a genius. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But they're rare and I usually get them written down in advance. So then I can therefore shame myself (laughs) into doing them. Do you have an idea of when that use of that came to you as as your means of creating like was it something that happened in college from the band or was it something from like playing the trombone like that era of yourself it could perhaps be like misplaced guilt from feeling like a bad person for not being an evangelical anymore even though I am an atheist at this point it could be like ingrained from that I don't know I've always done it that way and my father has always kind of done it that way as well so Watching him while I grew up and watching his artistic process while he had day jobs and also while he was working as an audio engineer and recording and doing all of this work in Chicago, you know, um, you get really used to watching artists and how they balance their livelihoods. Um, So, I mean, at that point, I don't know. I mean, like, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question. Oh, yeah. No, no, definitely does. (laughs) Did he work with exclusively evangelical artists or was he someone that worked with like a broad swath of people? He worked with a lot of people. Um, It's really funny. So he started out in like the Illinois, like downstate uh, rock and roll machine. That is like all of those rollicking bands. Mm -hmm. You can hear his playing on a couple songs that were on the Daisy and Confused soundtrack. Wow. For a band called Head East. It's kind of ridiculous. God! Um, He played, uh, he did some session work for Cheap Trick. I know he used to hang out with the Ario Speedwagon guys, which is like, ha ha, very funny. But he had a moment in the mid-70s where he switched to, like, full-on jazz fusion, 
And that was it. I don't know when my moment will be whenever that is, but I'll, I'll have my jazz fusion moment. And I'll be like, <laughs> I'll, I'll just let you know, I'm there. And it took, it took a, what is it? Well, this is 30. So, um, <laughs> somewhere 17 years, I'm going to estimate from when you really started to get into music. 17 years from that is when you hit jazz fusion. Ooh, okay. I'm ready. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm ready for, I'm ready for maximum notes. <laughs> That, that is the difference between me and my father is he's maximum notes and I'm very like, I, I want everything to be like as simplified as possible, but that's again why I didn't go to conservatory, mm. so. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, that's also like one of those basic rules of pop music where it, uh, like pop music does not need to be a lot to no. be a hit. Mm-mm. No, it doesn't. No. And I mean, they used to say the same thing at art school. They're like, you should try and get the most out of your art that you can get for the least that you put into it. And I'm like, yeah, dude, like ultimately you want to keep it as simple as possible so people can get that earworm and get it stuck there. My favorite example is um, Born in the USA, two chords the entire yes. time. Yes. that I think that's what happened with Nine Inch Nails, honestly. <laughs> like if you take the visuals away, like, and you listen to it just as is, I'm like, this is a fucking oh, disco record. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> this is a fucking yes. disco sad record. That's, that's what this true. is. Yes. Patti Smith, Nick Cave, Derek Jarman. You mentioned as role models for yourself because they knew how to pivot when life threw curveballs and they still wanted or needed to make art. They just they made it work. Yes. And they also made it in multiple different fields. But I just I like the people who I don't what's the term for us? Is it multi-potentialite? I've heard that online and I. Oh, is that a word? I don't know. Yeah. I've heard people. I've heard people refer to us as slashes, which I think is probably the closest you can get. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that one I'll take. <laughs> I'm like multi potential. Like, no, that sounds super douchey. But slash, like, okay, yeah, a slash something slash something slash something. Oh, that yeah. makes sense to me. I think. Yes. LinkedIn um, is hard. But all of those people did. You know, they wrote music. They made art. They made um, film. All of it was like relatively towards moving the conceptual idea of their work forward in one way or another, rather, regardless of whether or not it was visual or musical. And to that, I really respect that. Derek Jarman, for example, would probably be my number one on that list. He was a gay filmmaker in the 60s and 70s and did Caravaggio, did like all these like highly stylized films. Oh, and he also did like um, Jubilee, the first punk film. But yeah, he, he was originally trained in painting and, and continued to make paintings as well as films until he died. And he was also like a hardcore AIDS activist. So like, I love knowing about these three-dimensional people mm-hmm. because I feel mm. like that's like a way better way to like build your career anyway. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, like how important was pivoting to you, especially with having to shut down everything last year? Well, I went from taking the train into D.C. five times a week um, in order to go work at the museums Mm. to not having any jobs. Mm. And I had been splitting my income five or seven different ways. It's usually how I generally tend to do it. I try to split my income in five to seven ways. It makes for a pain in my ass during tax season. But (laughs) for the rest of the year, it's it's the only way that I can make a living um, Mm -hmm. doing my various things. But, yeah, I went from having like five or six different streams of income to like one which was a nightmare. Um, I know a lot of people went from that and actually had way worse of a chance than I did. But I mean, I just, I had to pivot. It was either that or die. So I refinished a bunch of kitchens this year. 
That was cool. <laughs> yeah, I saw you doing that. I was oh like, God, it's not really my bag, but like I can do it. I physically know how. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just adjusting those skills you've learned again from the physical labor to new opportunities to just survive through this. Yeah. Luckily, it feels like things are kind of like moving in a better position. I just got a phone call about potentially doing a music video for somebody, which I'm like, okay, good. People Mm -hmm. are coming back. Mm -hmm. The scene is coming back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've been very, very happy seeing these uh, the show posters for like later on in the year with some of these bigger bands booked up in like September and October. And like, while I don't have anything on the calendar for me right now, I'm still just like, thank God the bigger bands are touring because we got to get some money moving in this thing. It's nuts. Yeah. Yeah. How important were seasonal changes to you before the pandemic? For the types of jobs you had, it seems like seasons very much drove how much income you made from them, how busy you were. Yes. So um, I do live and die by wedding season. That's the reality. In this part of the country, it is bigger in the fall than it is in the spring, just based off of the fact that the spring tends to be a little wobbly in terms of weather. And brides don't like to sweat. No, no. So, I mean, I will live and die by my seasons, but it's like, yeah, it's it's just mostly like booking things three or four months out. I mean, you guys both know this as well because you're both, again, slashes who do a million things and have a million different projects going all at once. Like, it's just booking everything in three or four months out. Like, I can't fly by the seat of my pants anymore, but that's okay. I'm 30 years old. I don't really need to. <laughs> <laughs> How important is it for you to have a support system that understands the specific stresses and struggles that you go through with the type of work that you do and the type of art you create? For me, it's huge. And that's partially the reason why I am not living in the Midwest or living in my crappy small town, because those resources don't exist there, Um, or at least they don't exist outside of Chicago City. And I can't afford Chicago City. I am very blessed to live in Baltimore and Baltimore has a very strong and very small but very vibrant art and music scene that has a lot of crossover. And I'm very lucky because there is, this is Baltimore, firstly, it's Baltimore. And secondly, I get to hang out with weirdos, only weirdos, and I usually don't have to interact with normal people. (laughs) Most of the time. The only normal people I interact with are brides. So, I mean, I don't know how normal that is, but... I mean, I'm, I'm very lucky in terms of that. Like I am supported by my roommates are all musicians and artists. People down the street are musicians and artists. There's I've got a painting studio in a large uh, warehouse space here in Baltimore called the Copycat. Um, and so I get to have my studio mates. I really don't speak to normal people until it's time for tax season. I swear to God. <laughs> Oh, that sounds like a I'm very dream, I'm very though. blessed in that regard, though. <laughs> yeah. I'm blessed in that regard. But on the other hand, it's like, you know, it, it's those weeks in between where you're like, can somebody please give me a job? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, my God, please. It's been two weeks since somebody emailed me, please. How important are those physical spaces to have for security reasons, storage reasons, sort of identity reasons, where it's just it's your space that you control what happens in there. So you have storage for your artwork and then you also have a place to play with your band that is yours. So I'm really, again, extremely spoiled because Baltimore has relatively inexpensive real estate compared to a lot of the other cities on the East Coast. For its location, we're an hour from D.C., we're two hours from Philly, we're four hours from New York. Like I have access to pretty much everywhere, but I don't have to pay that kind of money. So I technically have a separate studio, a separate home and a separate practice space. 
which is insane. And I'm getting all of that for under a grand. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. I know, I know that's stupid, um, but it's still here and it's still working. But it gives me the ability then that my work doesn't have to necessarily reflect the smallness of the space around it. For example, when I first, um, when Natural Velvet first played Brooklyn, I made the rookie mistake, as all bassists do, of bringing the biggest fucking rig I could possibly big bring because I was like, all right, if someone's going to have the big dick here, it's going to be me. <laughs> <laughs> so I brought I'm not even fucking kidding you an 8 by 10 um, oh and you should have seen these fucking bands loading out of their taxis and they saw that they're like ooh can we borrow your amp yes that's a, that is the first thing <laughs> and I'm like yeah you're loading into a taxi please please fucking use my amp and the other thing of course of like, you know, if, for example, if you move to New York as a painter, that's going to affect the kind of work you're going to produce, what kind of work comes out of your home if you have a studio. In my case, I have never had to worry about size regulation, so I make big paintings still because I have access to the space. If I had moved to New York, I'd probably be doing small work. That's just the reality of it. So in that regard, I've been very lucky and able to find resources as well as a cheap place to live full of creatives. And people are always going to talk shit on Baltimore, so that's good. <laughs> it means the real people it means the normies won't come in ever which is great exactly like stay over like, there please don't yes please continue to talk shit because you are trying to tackle so many different jobs and creative outlets at once trying to keep a schedule together for that what does it feel like how do you handle when you suddenly realize like your schedule that you set has started to fall apart or you're missing things. Like, how does that affect you? Um, admittedly, I, it's, it involves a lot of self-hate. Usually around three o'clock in the afternoon is when I start looking at my like to-do list and I'm like, oh fuck, can't finish it all. There's no way. So I don't think I've, I think I finished one to-do list this week. And that was like my like little happy open a beer and like sit and drink it, like really proud of myself kind of thing. But I don't think I've been able to finish my to-do list and God knows how long just because everything moves so slow during the pandemic. But, you know, um, that being said, I'm still making work. I'm still lucky to do that. I managed to get a good chunk of the executive dysfunction that was fucked up from my earlier meds at the beginning of the pandemic really kind of sorted out. So the work's the work's getting done. Would you feel comfortable talking a little bit more about what executive dysfunction is? Ooh, executive dysfunction is when basically it, it kind of shuts down your ability to make decisions. And it comes under moments of high stress. And it can also come from like having medication that is off. In this case, I managed to catch it, obviously, at the very, be very beginning of the pandemic because we went from very well employed, very organized, well put together career and 2020 was looking really good to a nightmare situation. And I know a lot of people were having that kind of like brain fog executive dysfunction, especially at the beginning. There's still some people who are dealing with it. I get it from time to time still because shit isn't still not cool outside. But like for the most part, I think I've managed to nail it down. But again, it was a couple weeks and a couple months of like switching out medications and that whole fun adventure. What was it like realizing that mental health was something you wanted to look more into? And how did that work with how you had grown up in that evangelical lifestyle? It's really weird. Like, I didn't find out that my mother was on Prozac until I was 25. Like, she dropped it, like, briefly in a conversation. And I was like, wait, what the hell? Like, I was like, wait, you've been on Prozac for how long? 
like this is information I should have known as a teenager. We could have avoided a lot of pain and suffering. Why didn't you tell me? They're not really the kind to like seek help in that regard. I know they treat me with like baby gloves because I do talk pretty openly about my seeking help, but it's also partially because like a good chunk of it is mostly whining about finances. Mm. That's that's a good chunk of it. Every single time I go to a therapist, they're like, what's your goal? And I'm like, to be able to not starve to death. That's all I want to do. I'm 30 years old. I've built this like multifaceted career, but I would love to not be like scraping the bottom of the barrel for the rest of my life. Yeah. And I'm sure I know that that I know that they're getting similar. Hey, we just need money responses. In relation to socialism, this is partially why I'm so excited about uh, <laughs> the bill, the child tax credit that just passed. I'm super excited oh, yeah. because that is the closest we've ever gotten to a UBI. And I would argue that seeing as how we are all on social media and we are all producing so much work, we should be having a UBI in this country, period. Can you explain what a UBI is for people who don't know who are listening? Sure. A universal basic income, that's a UBI. That would be some some amount of money, um, usually a couple hundred bucks, just given to you just so you don't die um, mm-hmm. by the government, which I would argue is a huge thing that we should really consider doing in this country. And it would be something that even just only taxing billionaires, would we would be, we would be able to do it. Oh, yeah. This would bring so many people out of poverty. I think they were they were crunching the numbers for the child tax credit UBI and they were like, this will lift 50 percent of children in poverty out of poverty. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. That's the fucking point. Exactly. That's the fucking point. Like you don't want child poverty. And then like, can we also address adults now? That'd be great. There should be a UBI for just about every single person. We have the ability. We're the one supposedly one of the richest countries in the world. Take care of your artists, especially if you want to give a shit about culture and especially if we continue to be the cultural exporters of the world. Oh, this country does. <laughs> this country in a way treats artists is just not even. It's an embarrassment. I just see, it's so shitty. And you look at other countries and you're like, oh, you actually put aside some money during the pandemic to help? <laughs> you gave people grants? <laughs> Wait, hold on. You gave people, you covered their rent? hold up we're gonna have to fight really hard when that uh, child tax benefit comes back up for renewal in like the next year that's the reality is we're gonna have to fight pretty hard because they're gonna try and get rid of that because they know it is the closest we've ever gotten to being able to financially sustain most of the people in the United States so yeah that's why I'm a huge uh, UBI bitch I will be bitching about this for the rest of my life (laughs) Um, squawking about it as a matter of fact um, so it's cool. It's cool now that uh, people who um, have children will be getting the child tax credit. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Now they should do that for everybody. And especially if they want to um, continue to dominate culturally in the way that we have done so far for so long. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What kind of other experiences from the work you've done creatively and financially and the ones that cross over into both worlds, how did those impact your opinion on the importance of community? Ultimately, just having people around me to be able to kind of, who are also slashes or whatever the fuck we want to be called, musicians, artists, people who do multiple things, whatever. Having access to that and being able to see good practices of what it looks like to actually sustainably keep yourself alive is huge. So to that end, I'm very lucky for the community like that because I, you know, am pretty tapped in. Along with that, how have those also influenced your idea of capitalism? Oh, God. Um, (laughs) Money isn't real. I've really discovered that, especially since downloading the Robinhood app, 
Granted, I don't have any like actual time for hobbies. You guys probably know that as people who do stuff, you're like, oh, a hobby, JK, a new way of making money. That has been a common thread with like, just about everyone we've talked to. It's like, yes. what the fuck are hobbies? Who the fuck has time for them? We don't have time no. for hobbies. No, we don't. <laughs> you're like, you're like, oh, I think I'm going to get into photography. Two years later, you're like taking band photos professionally. And it's like, <laughs> you're like, OK, that was fun. <laughs> Yeah. Now people are still signing yep. contracts. I'm still doing the same shit. <laughs> <laughs> I think my favorite thing I, I read recently was we live on a floating rock where everything we need is free. And then we somehow convince ourselves to just make up money. We really do have everything we need. And all of a sudden money is just like a thing we've put so much emphasis on. And I'm like, oh, I don't want it anymore. The great hoarding of wealth is probably the most disgusting thing that can be done. I mean, I, Elon Musk, I don't even really want to get into it, but like, uh, fuck yeah, off forever. Yeah. Fuck off forever. <laughs> Please pay your taxes, you asshole. <laughs> I saw what you didn't pay last year. Money was invented. Money was invented. How the hell do you attach it to art or music? And how do you insist to the government that what you're doing warrants getting paid to do every single month? I think about that a lot. I think about that. And I think about the fact that money is not fucking real on the regular. One of the other things I feel like you mentioned was this idea that while artists and creatives have been trying to gain more room to demand more and what they deserve this last year set everyone back because a lot of venues, labels and galleries shut down. And who does that leave left for everyone to deal with? That leaves nobody. I mean, I think, what was it? Art Handler Mag did a fairly casual, like, group of questions for art workers. And they were, I think the numbers came out to, like, 95% of art workers had their finances fucked with because of the pandemic. And I'm like, yeah, of course it would be that high. We know it to be that true because we've seen it. We've seen all of our friends lose their jobs. But a lot of the people who don't live in that world don't understand. I would love to see it get better funded. I would love to see artists treated better. I think it's hugely important to the culture of any particular place. And um, I think it also kind of fights a lot of the bro-y tech culture at its absolute core, mm. which is huge and important. I, th I feel like you mentioned it a couple times, the idea of mediocrity and nepotism that are involved yes. in pretty much any field you look at. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You mentioned some organizations that can help people to get started with like how to counter that, which included the Women's Audio Mission and She Shreds. Oh my God, they are awesome. They are the best. No, dude, I, I gave up on music forums except for She Shreds. What am I going to do? Argue with some dude who thinks Nirvana is the best thing that ever happened? Uh, <laughs> it's 2021. I really don't need to be told by dad how I should listen to my records. <laughs> what personal goals do you want to set for yourself in the next year and what do you hope for in general <laughs> i am Your just getting face. back into i am just getting back into thinking about like the ahead of times yes i'm very hopeful that we have a strong economy that's going to be huge especially for as much as i don't like to talk about it like the macro does inc influence the micro and especially with creatives we're the first ones to feel it um i mean I am hoping, I want to see some serious success stories after COVID. It doesn't necessarily have to be me. You know, like I remember, I remember writing in uh, high school, they were like, what, what would, would be, what would make you feel successful? And I was like, access to treadmill 
a studio <laughs> space and a bathtub. <laughs> and I have technically all three of those things right now. I wish I had a bathtub. So, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's fine. But yeah, as long as I've got that, I'm like, I don't know. I'm feeling pretty good in that regard. But I am I am ready to see some post-COVID like success stories. I'm ready to watch all my friends blow up into the, into the stratosphere. And especially, I've had a couple friends um, blow up and do well during the pandemic. And that's just great, you know. You literally wave. You're like, goodbye. I loved knowing you. I'm very happy for you. <laughs> I'm very happy for you that it's all going the way it needs to go. Yes. And I, I want to see that for probably everybody we work with. Mm-hmm. I think we're I think we're potentially looking at a post a post COVID boom. Um, mm. And especially if Robin Hood is telling me what I think it, it's telling me. But <laughs> <laughs> what is what is Robin Hood telling you right now? Robin Hood right now is saying buy the fuck out of some stock. But not Dogecoin. <laughs> oh God! I want to see every artist do amazing this year. Rising tide raises all boats. In this case, only in this case. I want to see. I want to see everybody just blow it out of the water. And I want to wave bittersweetly as you go and explode in your career. And I go. I met her. <laughs> <laughs> I met her once. She was great. I'm just gonna cross fingers. That's Oh my God, that is the end of our interview with Corinne, the last episode of season one. Holy crap, it took a minute to get here. (laughs) The heat is on. We are nearly four, five months after this interview happened a day. This is crazy. (laughs) But anyway, you can find Corinne on all social media at C-O-R-Y-N-N-E-O-S-T-E-R-M-A-N-N. Her band, Natural Velvet, can also be found on all the social medias. Again, that's Natural Velvet. And you should be seeing a remix EP of theirs out in the world. Also, we're going to take a little break from posting things. Um, Aday and I are both going to be on tour for a hot minute. Uh, So we have a couple interviews for season two we're supposed to do. Uh, We'll see how well those go. And we'll see you guys, you know, if we end up having time to make some lovely extra pieces, maybe some more this summer. But, you know, uh, if there's one thing we've learned from this show, it is that everyone deserves to take a step back from all of the work they're doing. Because when it starts to get overwhelming, no one's happy, you know? So, whatever happens this summer, get ready for season two this fall. Specific date to be announced. 